It's very good to be here with you. You know, this is my first time in Winnipeg. And I feel comfortable saying I, I would love to come back again. So that's good, right? You can't always say that everywhere you go. Um, but it's a beautiful, beautiful place. I'm glad I didn't come in the winter. Uh, it's still a little bit cold for me. You know, I'm more hot-blooded kind of person. But, yeah, your, your April into May isn't too bad. So, you know, this time and later towards summer, I think, is, is totally fine with me. Um, so the, this morning, you know, we... There's a, there's a term that, that Paul uses multiple times, and that's why I asked that um, this passage from Romans would be read. And, you know, there's so many things the, the Apostle Paul wanted, um, especially these, these Gentiles, which I'm guessing most of us in this room would say like, we're Gentiles, we're not from a, a Jewish ethnic background. But he really wanted these Gentile believers, fresh in the Messiah, to understand their identity. And and a part of that identity is this idea of sonship. And and different translations in English will will kind of phrase it different ways, adoption as sons and so forth. And and it's really clear when Paul talks about it. It's something, it's not about, you know, uh, your DNA, it's, it's not about, you know, flesh and blood kind of thing. It's, it's, it's a work of the Spirit. It's something that we receive with the Spirit of God. And that, yeah, it, it, it sort of empowers us, but then there's also, like, there's some kind of question marks, I think, if we don't understand the cultural background. Like, you know, what, what does it really mean, you know, for example, to be heirs with Christ? And, and, and why do we have this adoption as sons, like, what is that language really about? Is that just describing maybe an intimacy with God? You know, but if so, we have other language for that, right? We, we talk about the church being the bride of Christ, and what could be more, more intimate and unifying than that, that picture, that metaphor of a, of a marriage relationship? And so, you know, the, what, what I think is behind that term is a very ancient, Middle Eastern idea of firstbornness, particularly being a firstborn son. So how many people in this room are, are literally, like biologically, you're a firstborn son? Quite a few hands went up. Okay. Spiritually, who in this room is a firstborn son? If you're in Christ, everybody's hand should go up. Yeah, even the ladies, right? Because if I were to say, who in this room is, is the bride of Christ? Right? Guys, you've got to raise your hands. You're a bride of Christ. And, and sisters, spiritually, in God's eyes, you are a firstborn son. And that might feel weird. Why, what is that about? Why does that matter? What, is that, what are the implications of that, right? That's what I want to talk about this morning. Because it's a big deal. It's a big deal in the story of the Bible itself, and it goes all the way back to the beginning. Um, one of the things that those who were here um, over the weekend in, in this module that we did, um, you know, we were, we were learning how to share about our faith and, and sort of the significant elements of our faith through story. And, you know, extra points if, if the story can come from the Bible, like that's really good. Um, and super extra credit points, A++, 
if you can find a story in Genesis that illustrates that point. And so as I was, you know, praying through this, this topic and, you know, this idea of sonship is just all over, all over the, the text of Scripture from the beginning to the end. And so I was, like, asking the Lord, like, what, what, what story could I kind of ground this in? And the Lord, like, you know, jokingly was like, well, extra points for you now, so if you can do it in Genesis. And so I'm like, hmm, challenge accepted. And so I want to read to you what, you know, probably like a lot of stories, you know, for, for most of you, maybe, you know, you don't grow up in the Middle East. This is a weird part of the world to people here in North America. And maybe when you read these stories, because they're so grounded in kind of Middle Eastern culture, you just think this is weird. I don't know why I read this. Why is this even in the Bible? Um, and so I'm going to read to you maybe what, what might be one of those stories for you, but then we're going to break it down a little bit. And I hope that this will help us to get a better sense of why this is a big deal, why Paul wants to, these Gentiles in Rome to really understand this, this Middle Eastern concept of, of, of sonship, of, of firstbornness, um, and then reflect on the implications of that for us today. If this is a big deal, what are the implications for us? So uh, there's this guy in the story early on um, named Jacob, and we, we don't get this for every person in the Bible, but we get his birth story. And, and when you know he's, he's not born by himself, he's a twin. And, and here's, here's the story that we're told. So um, I'm just going to pick up in, in verse 21 for time's sake in Genesis chapter 25. And it says, um, and I like to use the Hebrew names. I hope that doesn't bother anybody. Maybe that helps just if you have the lullaby effect of reading a story too many times. Maybe just hearing the names pronounced differently might make it feel fresh for you. So Yitzchak prayed to Yahweh for his wife because she was barren. And Yahweh granted his prayer, and Ribka, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of Yahweh, and Yahweh said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within, from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So, they called, so his name was called Yaqub. Yitzchak was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Yaqub was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Yitzchak loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Ribka loved Yaqub. Once, when Yaqub was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Yaqub, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. By the way, dear reader, therefore his name was called Edom. Yaqub said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Yaqub said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Yaqub. Then Yaqub gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. 
Great story, right? You're like, what is that about? What is, like, you get the impression, like, why is this in the Bible? Why do we care? Why does it matter? Like, you know, that last line is so, like, kind of almost sinister, right? Like, it's foreboding. It's like, dun, dun, dun. Like, something really bad has just happened. And I find that for most of my, my Western friends, like, they don't understand, like, what was the big deal? Right? We almost, like, we can kind of sympathize with Isu. Who, what's a birthright? Can I put it in my pocket? I certainly can't eat it, and I'm hungry. And so for Isu, you know, the, the bowl of, of lentil stew was more valuable than this abstract thing, a birthright, right? What they get, what I'm reading from the ESV, and what they, the translators have translated as birthright in Hebrew um, is, is bechor, which means firstbornness, particularly firstborn son. So Isu has sold his identity as a firstborn son to his twin brother, Yaakov. Because to him, who cares? But the author of the Bible seems to be implying by telling us the story and telling, it, telling us the story in this way that it is a big deal. He shouldn't have done that. He should have known better. We should feel bad for him. There's obviously more going on, right? And so what you have to, what, what we need to understand is what is the big deal about being a firstborn son in, in Middle Eastern culture, both in ancient days and in these times, and also to today. These things have not changed. So let me tell you about myself. I'm, I'm the firstborn son of 10 children. My dad had two wives. And I grew up knowing that being firstborn, there was a lot of honor with that. There was privileges that came with that, privileges with regard to inheritance, and that sort of thing. You might say, you know, blessings, earthly blessings that came with being a firstborn son. But at the same time, there are also heavy responsibilities that are all wrapped up in that. And you can't have the one without the other. And, and the job of the firstborn son within the family, the scope of the family, both in the ancient Middle East and today, is to be the bridge between the parents and their identity and um, hopes and dreams for the future, their whole legacy, and to be the vehicle and the bridge to make sure that that gets transferred to the next generation, to all the other siblings, however many of them there may be, to be the translator and the mediator between the rest of the children and the parents. And so to do that, that means as the Bechor, as the firstborn son, you need to know the, the heart of your parents. You need to understand not just like what they're up to, what they're doing, but why they're doing it. What is their agenda? What, are, what is their end game? What is their goal? And to make sure that you can understand that and translate that and also model the behavior that you see reflected in, in your parents to your fellow siblings so that they can see it. Because sometimes when you're little kids and you're watching mom and dad do things, you're like, I don't, I don't know how to do that in my child world. But the job of the firstborn son is to, to model, to know that and model that anyway. 
so that the rest of the children can see, oh, this is what it looks like in the child world to act like mom and dad. It's a big responsibility. And if you mess it up, a chain that can be hundreds or or thousands of years long gets broken. And suddenly, the family that emerges no longer looks like the family that it came from. And legacy is lost and destroyed. So in my personal case, you know, coming from, you know, a Muslim family, a very devout Muslim family in Saudi Arabia and being the firstborn son, my one job was to make sure that I was the faithful link in the chain going back 1,400 years of faithfulness and zealousness for the religion of my fathers. And so for me to leave that religion and come to Christ was to break that chain, and it, it messed up and broke so many relationships in my family when I did that. It was a really tough thing, right? That same idea is present in this story. Yitzchak, Isaac, is the carrier of an identity that he received from his father, Abraham. Abraham was chosen by God to receive a blessing, but also a responsibility. And that that blessing and that responsibility was wrapped up in more than just Abraham's personal family. It wasn't like God just showed up and told Abraham, I'm going to bless you and have a nice life. No, he said, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. And ultimately, this is unto somehow, some way, it's really vague at the beginning of the story how this is going to work out, but there's this somehow all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And when you pay attention to where the story of Abraham kind of slots in as you're reading the narrative in Genesis, it's right after this story of the Tower of Babel, which is sort of the origin story for why do we have all these different nations and all these different languages in the world. It seems like humanity that was one before is now broken. Now God has all of these different nations, all of these different children, but who's going to be his Bechor? Who's going to, what nation in all the world can take on the responsibility and receive the blessing that goes with it to know the Father in heaven and translate his heart and reflect his heart and his values, his character, his expectations, his goals for this planet to the rest of the nations in the world. And God looks at the nations after Babel, and there's no nation that's ready, willing, or able to take on that mantle. So God makes his own nation supernaturally. Through an old man and his barren wife, he produces a nation. And this story about Jacob, Jacob's another link in that chain that God's going to use to to form for himself a nation on the earth that will have a special relationship with the parents, but their job is not just to enjoy that special relationship and the blessing, they have a responsibility to all the other nations of the world to teach them who their father is, what he's like and what he wants for them, to be the model child, the firstborn son. And there's, there's clues in this particular story with Jacob and Esau that go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, wouldn't you know? And one, there's a little, and this is a little bit of a pun, so forgive me, there's a little red flag 
And it's in the whole deal with, and they called him Edom. If you're Hebrew reading that Bible, you kind of snicker a little bit. Why? Because Edom looks very, very similar to Adam and how it's spelled. And you're thinking about Adam. And you're thinking, do I, have I heard this story before? Like this whole thing with, have we heard a story of, of someone who was a firstborn son, who had a responsibility and a blessing, and he traded it all away for something to eat? Have I heard this story before? Oh yeah, in the garden. Oh yeah, in the garden. The literal firstborn son of all humanity, Adam, sold his birthright and his blessing for a piece of fruit. It's happening again. We're still doing the same thing. And we'll see, like in the particular case with Jacob and Esau, that, that later on, so Jacob gets the birthright here, but then later there's a second story about, you know, get, he goes and steals the blessing. And when that happens, when that happens, now Esau's upset, like murderously angry. And it's very interesting to me because it shows me that Esau wasn't totally oblivious to what was going on and, and his identity as the firstborn son, but he didn't really care about the responsibility. That's what he thought he was trading to Jacob. He's like, I'll give you the responsibility, but I still want the blessing. Oh, that's the tragedy. That's, that's part of the lesson. That's part of why this story is here because sometimes... We don't understand that, that this, this spirit of adoption as sons that we have received in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit, there's so much blessing from that, and we love all the blessings that come from that, the intimacy with God, right? Being able to know his presence, to, to be able to talk to him, to reflect on his goodness, and, and just be in this kind of holy huddle with all the other Christians in our lives, but we don't really want the responsibility that, re, that we actually need to model something to everybody that's, all the other children in the world who are estranged from our father currently. And to be the, do the job of the firstborn son and, and invite them and bring them back into the family. Model for them who the father is that they don't have the closeness yet, the relationship with him that we have. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. It was a big deal to the Apostle Paul, and it needs to be a big deal to us. Because, you know, if you, when you follow the story of the Bible, you know, like, how did Israel do with this responsibility? They tried their best, but ultimately, they couldn't do it. They couldn't live up to it. They were missing something, right? And so how is God going to get a firstborn son on the earth who can actually model who God is to everyone around him and draw people back into relationship with the Father. God's like, well, I'm just going to go and do it myself. That's what we have. That's part of why we have Jesus, right? But then he invites all of us as his body now, all linked and connected by his spirit. We all have one spirit. And there's so much blessing from it, and we could talk for hours about the blessings. But this morning... All I want to do is plead for you to consider the responsibility that goes with that blessing. And just like Esau couldn't have one without the other, to give up the responsibility meant to lose the blessing. I think we have to think really carefully whether we really can get away with enjoying all the blessings that we enjoy as fellowship as believers and ignore the responsibility we have 
to all of uh, God's, the rest of God's children on this earth, from every tribe and nation and tongue, that don't currently have the blessing that we have, because they're invited in. The blessing isn't just for us. We, just like Abraham, we're blessed to be a blessing and to be God's chosen vehicle. Why? I don't know. He knows. But he's chosen. There's no plan B. His church, his bride, his plan A, be the vehicle to see that all the families of the earth can be blessed. So that's just what I want us to reflect on. And let me just pray for this. Abba, Holy Father God, this is such an awesome responsibility, and it, it could be so heavy that we could think, I, Lord, this is too much for us. You're just going to have to do it. We're not worthy. We're too busy. We're, we're not strong enough. We're not smart enough. We're not gifted enough. There's, we can have excuses, excuses, excuses till the end of days for why we can't do this. And yet, Lord, I'm so thankful for the reminder back to me again, even this morning from, from Pastor Carl, that you don't ask us to do this for you. You don't ask us to carry the weight of this responsibility alone. You are already doing it, and you're asking us to join with you. And so, Father, I just confess, I, I'm so quick to want to come up with excuses for for why this is too much, and I'm in over my head, God, but Lord, I just leave it all up to you. I trust you. You're God. I'm not. I just want to be available to you. I want to step in to this identity of sonship, of firstbornness that is mine, that is ours in Christ Jesus, our Savior, our King. And we just Afresh, Lord, we surrender ourselves to you. Whatever we have is yours. Fill us, use us, move through us, God. Bless the nations through us, God. The nations that are here, the nations that are everywhere, as you see fit, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.